The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. So this morning we're reading from Isaiah 50. We're in verses 4 through 11. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word this morning. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. This is the word of God. Okay, good. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Well, um, before we get started this morning, let's just uh, take a moment to pray. Our great God, we thank you for um, the realities of Palm Sunday. We remember this event in Scripture, recorded in all four Gospels. We remember how Jesus received the welcome he should have. Well, actually, it could have been more. It could have been bigger. Um, and there's a lot of irony there because he was welcomed as the king that he is. And yet, for many people, he was welcomed for the wrong reasons. And that would play out in the week that followed. So, Lord, as we remember those events, we pray for our own hearts. Um, we do celebrate you, Jesus. We say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Lord, we also confess that a lot of times we're much like the religious leaders on the sidelines. Inwardly, we can, um, we can resent the fact that we ourselves aren't getting the glory. We can be distracted by our own pursuits and lose track of what this is all about, about the glory of our God revealed in Jesus Christ. And we confess also that a lot of times we can be like the crowds who are cheering for you, welcoming you. And yet, when events unfold and we realize that the kingdom you bring and the deliverance you are about is not quite 
the immediately gratifying deliverance that we wanted, then we can grow bitter. And a week later, we can be shouting against you. So, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for those times. We ask that you would change our hearts so that we keep in our mind's eye the facts of who you actually are as our Savior and King, that we would see how your glory is greater than the Savior we wanted, greater than the King that we wanted to deliver us here and now in the, in the momentary things. Fix our eyes on eternity. Open us up to what you're doing across the ages for our greatest good. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we look at Isaiah 50, um, we've titled this, Behold the Messenger of the Lord. And in the ancient world, the role of messengers was considered a noble one because you didn't have the internet, you didn't have smooth roads. And so if you had an urgent message, you needed to get it through by giving it to a, a person for delivery on foot. And that was a very honored task. So probably the most famous messenger legend involves a man named Pheidippides, who in 490 BC, he ran over 25 miles from the Battle of Marathon back to the city of Athens to bring news of the Greek victory over the Persians. And that was important because the survival of their whole civilization was at stake. It was hanging in the balance. They needed to know if they needed to prepare for some sort of counter-assault. Well, apparently, Pheidippides took this task really seriously. He ran hard the whole way. He stumbled into the assembly, and he said, We are victorious! And then he dropped to the floor dead. There was a lot at stake for the Athenians. So, a faithful messenger was so, so important for them. But what if it was a matter of even greater life and death? What if there were a messenger from God who can make the difference between humanity's joy and sorrow, our flourishing or our demise, well then recognizing that messenger would be essential, right? How would the people know him when he arrived? That's what this passage is all about. Now there had been a number of prophets before Isaiah. All of them had called the people to keep covenant with God. But if we glance even at just the first three verses of chapter 50, we have a reminder of where that had all led. That Israel had enjoyed God's messages through the ancient patriarchs, through the prophets, but they still weren't walking with him. They were actually accusing God of divorcing or selling them as a people. But it was really their abandoning of God that was the problem. And so God asked them in verse 2, Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no answer? In other words, why did you ignore my message of repentance and faith? And in reading much of the Old Testament, we're left to wonder, like, is this how God's so-called plan of redemption is going to end? It seems to be bad ending after bad ending, reset, another bad ending. Is this how it's going to end with humanity warned and invited, but then not really receiving the message definitely not and as we lead up to easter we're looking at the four servant songs in isaiah they're songs because they were written poetically they're called servant songs because in each of them god refers to this mysterious figure as my servant so we've already looked at how this figure the servant would be 
a servant of justice. He would be the one to establish God's justice throughout the world. And we've looked at how he is the light of the nations. And this morning we're going to see how the servant is also the one specially appointed messenger. He's the messenger who's going to bring God's words to bear on humanity in a final way. So our passage for this morning unfolds by showing us five things. First, one unexpected messenger. I think we've got a slide, yeah. So verse 4, one unexpected messenger. Then verses 5 through 6, one unexpected path for that messenger. Verses 7 through 9, one certain vindication. And then in verses 10 through 11, we see two possible responses to all of that. And the main point of this servant song is for us to see Jesus as God's unique messenger, the one to whom we must say yes with our whole lives. Not just saying yes to his message each new day, but also letting ourselves be transformed into messengers in his likeness. So we start by considering one unexpected messenger. And by Isaiah's time, God's self-disclosure, his revelation had come for millennia and had gathered this people we call Israel, but they were a fickle people. They were a wayward people. How were they wayward? Well, when we read Isaiah, really we could boil it down to two tendencies in the so-called people of God. Syncretism and empty ritual. Empty ritual, I think you get. Syncretism means blending pure doctrine with outside systems of thought. So the empty ritual crowd, these were the ones who had all their ducks in a row. They never missed a sacrifice or a festival. They sure looked devout. But what they were really after was the security and the well-being of themselves and their families. And so they neglected care for the poor or mistreated. They left off really any working out of the heart of God that was too much of an inconvenience. They were more concerned with their own flourishing and their own reputation than with the glory of God actually being exhibited throughout their community. And then the second type of fickle people of God were syncretistic. They claimed to be worshipers of Yahweh, but they also bowed the knee to other gods and adopted all sorts of lifestyle practices that were acceptable to the surrounding cultures at that time, but were expressly not part of life according to God's good design. So empty ritualism and syncretism. I wonder which is more of a temptation for you as you go about living out your faith. Well, clearly in Isaiah's day, with these two types of disobedience, these two types of wandering from God, a further message was needed. And you know, that's actually the situation for all of us. That's where we all start. We all have this awareness of God. We see his goodness, his creativity revealed in nature. We see the care and with, with which we were each designed. We feel the tug on our consciences of a natural sort of morality. And depending on our upbringing, we might even have more precise knowledge of God. We've heard words about his character thrown around our whole lives. His mercy, his love, his holiness, his power. And like Israel in Isaiah's day, we may even have deep exposure to God's law. We've gone to church our whole lives. But um, this in itself is not enough to change us and to make us whole. So how would a people be gathered for God in a final way? How would they be united with God, not in name only, but in actual living? Another messenger is needed another messenger. 
Enter the servant figure who we met previously in chapters 42 and 49. He appears somewhat unexpectedly here. He doesn't really seem to fit with the context right before, but then he just starts speaking, seemingly out of nowhere, speaking in monologue. And this is the pre-incarnate Christ. He's speaking to us through the prophet 600 years before he was born in Bethlehem. And the servant says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So the servant possesses this gift from God, which is the tongue of those who are taught. It means that he himself is a successful disciple. He speaks wisely and as if he had had the foremost training. Now, when we think about Jesus as the fulfillment of the servant, our, our thoughts drift to like, well, he grew up in a, a poor and backward area. He didn't have a lot of educational opportunities. He was the adopted son of a simple carpenter. So we don't even know that he was put into any special rabbinic program. How did he get this tongue of the taught? And in Luke chapter 2, we, we have this incident recorded when Jesus was 12 years old. On a family trip to Jerusalem, Jesus kind of wanders back to the temple on his own. And for three days, he sat with the teachers, and he was listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him were amazed at his understanding and at his answers. And when we read the words of Jesus for ourselves, we know, we know why they were amazed, don't we? We know that he truly did possess this divine gift. And what makes it all the more wondrous is that he had to study. He had to grow into it because not only is he fully God, but he became fully man, born as an infant. And the simple upbringing of Jesus, that, that should help us to keep in mind that spiritual wisdom and the tongue of those who are taught, this sort of understanding doesn't ultimately depend on schooling. It depends on learning from God. So we shouldn't think like, well, if I, I could just go to Bible school or seminary, then I'd know a thing or two. There are plenty of people with Bible degrees who have no knowledge of God. It doesn't mean there's nothing to be gained there. Certainly Jesus availed himself of this opportunity in Jerusalem to speak with the teachers. But we see that his ability to speak like this was a gift from God. And similarly in Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John had testified before the council, it says... Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Did you know that the servant of the Lord, Jesus, he calls you to be the Lord's messenger as well? We've spoken throughout this series of how the servant's work is also the work of those who are found in him by faith. And so the same spirit who anointed Jesus' earthly ministry is the same spirit who dwells within each Christian. And that means that like him, you can grow into a person of wisdom and understanding. And that like Peter and John, you can have the tongue of those who are taught and others will recognize that you have been with Jesus. It's a cumulative effect of being prayerfully attentive to God's words. And the servant's gift of speech is highlighted here, especially for how he's able to sustain with a word him who is weary. Throughout the Gospels, we see people coming to Jesus who are hurting or who are oppressed, and he heals with his words. He commends their faith with his words. He assures them 
of the promises of God with his words. And he gives them these foretastes of what life is like in God's kingdom. His whole work and his whole approach to life were marked by this compassion. And the weariness that Jesus targets most of all is the burden of sin and the wreckage that it leaves in our lives. When we think about how Jesus sustains the weary, we can remember back to two weeks ago when we read about the servant that a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And at one point in Jesus' ministry, he openly declared these famous words. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you're weary here this morning, have you come to Jesus? If you're not even sure what that means totally, then let's talk afterward what it means to have your burdens lifted by Jesus. But um, what about those of you who have been walking with Jesus for years and yet you are weighed down this morning by burdens. If you are weighed down by burdens this morning, have you forgotten that the words of Jesus are what's needed to sustain the weary? Are his words inside of you? Are his words read by you in context? Are they meditated upon? Are they memorized or, or kept in front of you on a note card or, or something like that? Are you seeking out his words? Or are you replacing his words with the words of your own mindset or the opinions of others? Look to the Lord's messenger to sustain you through his words. That's how it happens. And the servant figure in verse 4, he's such a skilled counselor because of his attentiveness to God. So we read that every morning God awakened his ear to hear from him. It makes you wonder, like, what was life like for Jesus as he was growing up, as he was becoming a man, as he was walking this earth with increasingly heavy burdens? Well, it seems that despite the unique weight that Jesus carried, each new day was kind of like this exciting new adventure, full of possibilities. Like, what might God reveal to him? And Jesus was always receiving from the Father what he needed to give to others. His connectedness to the Father, that was his secret to effectiveness. So first we need to see that this, these words uniquely describe Jesus. There's never been anyone as connected to the Father as Jesus. He is the bridge between God and man. He is the one messenger we need. But also, in passing, note that this receiving from God day by day, this can be your means to effectiveness too. We need to be viewing each day like an exciting new adventure, full of possibilities of what God might reveal to us and then how he might use those words through us to benefit others. And we can live that way if our lives are united to this servant messenger, Jesus, by faith. So far, we're getting the picture of a messenger who's very skilled, very effective. But then verse 5 takes us in a surprising new direction of an unexpected path. We see one unexpected path. It says, the Lord God has opened my ear. Okay, that's similar to what he'd said before, but he finishes, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Now, why would he be rebellious or turn backward, especially when he'd been given such an incredible gift? 
because the path marked out for this messenger was an unbearable one. And this is going to come into view even more with the last servant song that we'll look at next week. But even here we get a taste of what Jesus endured during his trial and his humiliation. It says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So we're, we're growing in the realization here that the message that the Lord has for his people could not be complete without the suffering of the servant. This servant would not only be a greater prophet, he would also be called to a uniquely perilous mission. The unexpected path belongs to Jesus the crucified. And uh, as messengers in the likeness of the messenger, the unexpected cross belongs to us too. We have to remember that because suffering is not naturally embraced, right? No one likes to suffer. That's, that's why we wander from the unexpected path. That's why we become empty ritualists, because we don't want to actually suffer the cost of vulnerable relationship with God or with other people. That's why we become syncretists, because we don't want to suffer the actual cost of clinging to truth in a world that rejects it and always wants to dilute it. So we all have this fear to deal with when we're called to the path of suffering. So keep that fear, that fear of walking the messenger's path. Keep that fear in your mind because we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But moving on, we see the reason why the servant didn't rebel against this plan or opt out of this calling. It's because he believed in one certain vindication. He knew he would be vindicated. He knew he would be victorious and honored in the end. Verse 7 says, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. So his face is set like flint on the task ahead because he's certain that God is his help. Flint is a very, very hard rock. So this is um, it's a metaphor for being unchangeable. There is no changing this servant's resolve. He expects to be a victim of false accusation. He knows he may pass through shame and disgrace, being spat upon, having his beard pulled out, not to mention hanging naked on a tortuous instrument of death that was reserved only for heinous criminals. But he's confident that this will not end in shame and disgrace. We see in the gospel accounts that Jesus showed this unswerving commitment to the path of the cross. When Peter suggested that Jesus, you know, you won't have to suffer. Jesus shouted at him, get away from me, Satan. And in Luke 9, we see a probable reference to this Isaiah passage. It says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up. So in other words, when the days for him to be taken up on the cross drew near, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was able to push forward into this unthinkable pain and grief because he was certain that he who vindicates me is near. We talked about this last week as well in chapter 49 when the servant says, my recompense is with my God. That's a reference to the, to the resurrection. That's where Jesus was vindicated. So the resurrection is a stamp of God's approval on the finished work of the cross. That's how all of his enemies, his physical enemies, also, more importantly, his, his spiritual enemies, the powers 
um, in the heavenly places were put to open shame because the disgrace and the loss weren't ultimately for Christ, they were for his enemies. And this certain victory of the servant, his absolute confidence in God's help, that then leads him, in verse 8, to, to justifiably taunt those who would stand in the way of God's purposes. He taunts them. He says, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So throughout the servant songs, we've been emphasizing that one purpose of the servant is to make it possible for all of the people of God to serve in the way we were meant to. And that's exactly why the Apostle Paul brings these concepts of verse 8. He brings them forward to Romans chapter 8. Remember this? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So you can feel that same cadence at work, right? A challenge, response, challenge, response. Though there, there is a difference too, right? In, in Isaiah, the servant simply asks, who will declare me guilty? And he can leave it there because he was truly righteous. We have to continue to a further thought and say, who will declare me guilty? It is God who justifies me. And the servant, Christ Jesus, who died for me, was raised and is now seated in power. But we can be bold because... He won us that right through his boldness on our behalf. We follow our master, the servant, on this unexpected path, but we also share in the same vindication. So that means that as you encounter suffering within God's will, you can have that same confident attitude of, okay, let's do this. You can walk up to that painful obstacle. You can stare down that enemy precisely because you are in Christ. His victory is your victory. And just like God didn't let the servant perish in disgrace, neither will he let those who belong to the servant perish. So there is a sense in which we are invincible. They can kill us, but they can't hurt us. And that shouldn't, that shouldn't make us feel cocky or, or foolhardy, but it should make us humble and grateful and confident and sober, and it should enable us to set our face like flint. When loving someone in Christ's name means pain or loss, we can move forward. When our sovereign God doesn't give us immunity from disease or from heartache, we can trust that he has purpose in it and we can keep blessing his name. And when desires come knocking that are contrary to how he's designed us to live, we can say no because we really believe that the Lord God helps me and that the vindication on the other end of what feels like this unbearable suffering of temptation, it's worth it. Okay, you might say, but even though I'm following the servant and there have been times when I've felt that, I've felt that union, I've felt that his victory is my victory. Um, but I'm also fully aware that I'm not the servant. And uh, in a lot of the time, I'm actually 
a very poor servant. So then you might be thinking, well, in that case, verses 8 and 9 about vindication, those aren't really for me, right? Because in fact, when I sin, I am covered in shame and disgrace. Does anyone feel that way? Well, not so fast, because the work of Christ on your behalf is more powerful than that. So not only can we and should we tell off the enemy of our souls in the face of temptation, but we can also taunt him even in our failures. What? How does that work? Well, the prophet Micah, a contemporary of Isaiah's, he put it this way. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. So you see, the accuser of our souls and those speaking his lies, they're the ones who are going to wear out like a garment because the moth will eat them up. Because even in our failure, we have this light from the Lord. We have certain hope in vindication because he has pleaded our cause. He has executed judgment for us and not against us in Christ. Because the servant set his face like flint and passed through darkness into vindication. So we also can have hope when we're sitting in the darkness, even if it's a darkness of our own making. Shame and disgrace are not our landing place because we are joined to the faithful servant. And the quicker we realize that, the less power shame is going to have over us. The more often we tell ourselves and we tell our accuser that Jesus is still victorious on our behalf, even in failure, then the more frequently we'll actually find ourselves not giving in to temptation in the first place. Because wallowing in shame, that actually tends to produce more sin. But when we confess Christ as our victor, even in a place of guilt, even from that place of guilt, then both sin and shame lose their grip on us. So we see this unbreakable power of the servant to bring his people to God. And we see the final effectiveness of his message. Well, where does that leave us? There are only two responses to this messenger. Only two possible responses. The first is to devote yourself to him. Verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So the servant isn't just someone to be marveled at or to be used. He's to be obeyed. And this is really an extension of something that the Lord told Moses centuries earlier in Deuteronomy. He said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So we see that the servant prophesied by Isaiah is the greater prophet prophesied by Moses. A final messenger who is coming and who must be obeyed. And Isaiah prophesies the same outcome for those who don't heed the messenger's voice. For those who ignore the words of Jesus, the Lord will require it of him. Or as verse 11 so graphically warns, 
this you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Well, let's compare in even more detail those two responses. Um, those, let's look at those who are responding in these two ways. On the one side, we've got those who listen to his words. Uh, can we bring up that slide? Uh, comparing the two responses. So those who listen to his words are those who initially walk in darkness. And then those who ignore and so reject his words, those are those who walk by the light of their own fire. Those who listen to the messenger's words had no light. Those who ignore and reject his words equip themselves with burning torches that they themselves lit. And then in what position do they find themselves? The one who listens to the servant leans on his God. That, that word that you see in your text is rely. It's probably best translated from the Hebrew as lean because a contrast, a contrast is then set up with those who ignore the servant and they end up in a very different position. They're not leaning, they're lying down in torment. So we see that the message of the servant brings about this great division among humanity and some people fear God rightly and they find in this servant their leader, their teacher, their light, their source of stability, and then others are going to rely on self-made torches for light, and those will eventually mislead and destroy them. And that, that may seem straightforward, like, oh, we've you know seen this before. There's the righteous, the wicked, pretty basic. But two factors just to sharpen your thinking about this comparison. First, realize that the contrast isn't between those who walk in the light and those who walk in darkness. No, everyone in this picture walks in darkness. Everyone is in darkness. The contrast is between those who own that fact and then those who pretend that they don't walk in darkness. So it's a contrast between the admittedly blind and needy and then the self-sufficient who convince themselves that they can see just fine by their own devices. So it begs the question, are you in the darkness enough to benefit from this servant messenger? Will you humble yourself enough to renounce any claim to enlightenment? Will you admit that you can't see where you're going or what you're doing? Because this good news is only for those who admit their helplessness in the darkness. And then something else, realize that Isaiah's audience here was the so-called people of God. Now, of course, this warning is also relevant to everyone, everywhere, even those who, who haven't previously known God or heard of him. But it's first and foremost a warning to those who claim to worship God, but actually they're living out of a do-it-yourself sort of independence. So it was Isaiah's job then, and it's my job now, to warn you that just because you call yourself a Christian— and just because you do Christianist stuff, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have any real benefit from Christ. The real question is, from where does your light come? In Isaiah's day, the empty ritualists were claiming the name of Yahweh while living good lives for themselves, completely missing the heart of God. And in Isaiah's day, the syncretists were ignoring parts of God's word that offended them or that seemed out of touch with the norms of society. So you've got those two paths of disobedience. Well, in Jesus' day, 
When the longed-for servant of the Lord appeared, the Apostle John noted that he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And what about today? He still comes by his word, by his spirit, to his own people, and yet too many self-identifying Christians do not receive him because they're just more comfortable living by the light of their own torches. So what is it that truly illuminates and guides your identity and your decision-making? For those of us more tempted toward empty ritualism, you may even read your Bible every day, pray, but what is your light, really? Is it Christ, or is it family and tradition? Is it Christ or knowledge? Is it Christ or pragmatism? Is it Christ or politics? Is it Christ or your clean reputation? Do you trust in Christ or in your own moral acceptability? A great way to test that is to note how often you compare yourself to others. Do you trust in Christ or do you have faith in your own faith? Remember, our messenger leader, Jesus, he was willing to suffer lack and pain. He was willing to leave himself unprotected in order to serve his God and Father. And for those of you who are tempted more towards syncretism, you call yourself a Christian, but what is your light, really, day in and day out? Is it Christ, or is it the moral viewpoints of your classmates and coworkers? Is it Christ, or your own preferences and priorities? Is it the biblical Christ specifically, taken as a whole, nothing excluded, or is it a generalized Christ who you've boiled down to a few concepts like love and charity and justice that can be defined according to outside thought systems, and then celebrated by whichever in-crowd you want to be a part of. Remember, our messenger leader, Jesus, he was willing to suffer misunderstanding from society and to pass through shame and loneliness in order to serve his God and Father. At the end of the day, how can we tell if this Christ is really our light? Well, part of the diagnosis is how comfortable are you with having with this description of having been walking in darkness. If you're self-sufficient, then you're going to bristle at being viewed that way. And also, how aware are you of your need for constant day-by-day instruction from the Father, which even the sinless man Jesus knew his need of when he was on earth? Do you feel lost when you go without it? Do you feel weak and needy and lost apart from the light of God in Christ? And if you feel that way, then it would probably be reflected through a desperate longing for the word of Christ. But if we're not desperate, and if we carry ourselves with the attitude, no, I'm good, I've studied the Bible in the past, I have a decent understanding of it, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely guided by him. Beware, because one of the most popular torches is one that claims the priorities of Christ, but will never rely too much on his specific words. Or maybe a few memorable passages taken out of context. Why? Because that way we can really be a light unto ourselves, but then put the label of Christ on it. So some of us need to humble ourselves and stop creating God in our own image. The light of the suffering messenger, it doesn't sit well with popular culture, either on the right or the left. And his light leaves us, if it's really his light, it leaves us feeling utterly relieved and rescued. It doesn't leave us feeling smug or knowing. 
And for those who are smug and knowing, those who trust in their own instincts and influences more than they trust in the words of the messenger himself, well then verse 11 gives us this alarming verdict. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you've kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. So the self-sufficient crowd is half sarcastically told to just go right on their course. I have no darkness, you say. Well then, Isaiah says, go with that. Use that torch of your own making. Good luck. Let me see where your light is leading you. Of course, it's not a funny thing. It's, it's a tragic and a heartbreaking thing. But among the so-called people of God, it's such an arrogant posture that results in, in this. And, and so it, it is kind of a dark humor at play. The hubris is just overwhelming. Because here is the prophesied servant, Jesus. He's fully revealed in the scriptures. He's been taught across millennia of historic Christianity. And we would rather just kind of intuit what would please God than to utilize and stick to the words he gave us. And that's the broad road that leads to destruction. But maybe you're saying today, no, I, I know that I walk in darkness. I've tried a lot of things, but I always keep coming up empty. I know I'm not put together. I don't need to be perceived that way. I want to understand what these words are saying. Well then, friend, I've got very good news for you. You're told here to recognize Jesus as God's unique revelation and to lean into his words. Rely on God through him, just as he relied on God the Father during his own earthly trials and tasks. And if you do that, you will have light. You will have stability. That's the one big command for all of us this morning. Obey the voice of the servant, Jesus Christ, God's final messenger. And to all who do receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. So Lord, we ask for that light in each of our lives. We ask that you would free us from syncretism and from empty ritualism. We ask that we wouldn't be yours in name only, but that our hearts would beat in line with yours, that we would be going to you day after day, desperate for teaching, longing to see what you have for us and to see what we can pass on to others. Lord, we thank you for our final messenger, Jesus Christ. Cause his words to live in us. We pray it for the sake of your name. Amen.